0: All right, well good afternoon everybody. We appreciate you joining us again. This is Corey Worden. I'm the Administrator for the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty and you're listening to our Health Beat Podcast where we cover different safety issues that are relevant to the healthcare safety profession. So with us today, we have Todd DeVoe who is a renowned uh, prolific emergency manager and the host of the EM Weekly Podcast. So you've got a lot of great information and we're gonna be talking today about emergency management as related to healthcare and to healthcare safety. So talk, we appreciate you joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Corey. Thank you very much, my pleasure.
0: Great, thank you. All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started if you would. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, kind of your career path and how you came to be in the the place you are now.
1: Sure, you know, um, started back in 1989 uh, when I joined a volunteer fire department upstate new york and that really kind of got me going um into the career of, of a response obviously uh with doing uh, fire and rescue and then i moved into ems uh from there um and then uh i joined the navy in 1991 when the gulf war broke out to be patriotic and then by the time uh, we got through all the all the boot camp and training and all that kind of stuff uh that, that that portion of the war was over and uh then I served with my and then I went to course school I went to field medical school uh in the over at Pendleton and started to serve with the Marines. And the reason why I tell a story about that is because it really the, the military gave me a really great uh round education when it came to medicine. So it wasn't just a paramedicine, it wasn't just being a medic. Uh you went through um health prevention, all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, we call it bug chasing when we we're in the military uh kind of do that uh, epidemiology type stuff of where diseases start. So we even learned some of that. So we had this really rounded to, to medicine. And then when I got out of the Navy, I worked in LA County um, as a paramedic for a few years, and then I moved into emergency in 2004. All right, outstanding. Well, that,
0: that's very interesting. Um, I like how you mentioned there how everything in the military kind of expands beyond just the basic functions of the profession. You know, I had the same type of experience where I, I had enlisted in the Air Force uh, a couple of years after 9 11. And I joined the Air Force in 2004. And I had gone into what at the time they were calling it readiness, which was a function of the Civil Engineer Squadron. And they later renamed it to emergency management. So basically, what that meant was the first couple of years we were doing mostly counter counter seaburn, you know, counter-chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear. And then as you kind of gain more experience and more rank, then you went into more emergency management proper. And so I started working as an emergency operations center manager and doing a lot of work in planning and operations and training and things of that nature. So it, it was really interesting because anywhere else in the world, I, I wouldn't have got that level of experience in the time that I did and so i'm always grateful for the for the military for that reason so it sounds like you um so you you were a corpsman in the yes. marine
1: corps yeah i was a corpsman with the marines um so it, it, it was like one of my, my, my favorite experiences uh you know in in my life actually is is, is serving uh in that capacity you know uh it was one of those things like if it wasn't so hard on the family lifestyle right i, I probably would have stayed in the military but um. You know, I don't think that my, it was, it's for me, and this is my opinion, and it doesn't mean it doesn't work for everybody. But uh, being married and being in the military is really tough. You know, um, that's why the divorce rate is high in all branch, but specifically um, in the Navy and Marine Corps because, you know, where we are, always being deployed, um, going out, it's really tough on family. So when I decided I wanted to be married, um, that's when I knew I needed to get out, be a civilian, be able to work uh so that's what's kind of my why i went the way i went but it was a good choice right i mean i'm happy um with what i'm doing now and and it's uh but it was this is just a good experience yeah
0: that that's outstanding you're definitely that that's definitely a sentiment that's shared among a lot of people i know that same same type of thing i was in the air force which you know if you if you stack up the different branches you know the air Force tends to be the deployments are shorter and it's a little less austere but even then in during the time i was in the service for five and about five and a half years i was active duty i was i was gone for almost half of it and that yeah. that's you know the air Force so i can imagine in in your situation you know being um you know marine expeditionary force or or you know army infantry are gone for you know 15 to 18 months at a time it's it's definitely a hard life to sustain so, uh, all the respect in the world for those that do a full career. Um, I did, I did five and a half years myself. And then, then I was a contractor for another year before we came back into, into the civilian world But um, That's yeah. great. So that kind of takes you into, into emergency management. So how'd you, how'd you find your way from, from military and doing, you know, uh, doing emergency medicine, and then kind of find your way into the emergency management field? That's like the
1: million dollar question, right? I mean, I, I ask this to everybody who I come in contact with in the field of how did you get into emergency management? Because I, I'm fascinated, truly am fascinated by, by the path, how everybody gets here. And I'm going to tell you, as, as in the field of emergency management, right, and this broader field, we are the most eclectic group of people that you ever put into one profession. You know, you have those that come from lights and sirens, like I, I did it basically, you have people that came from the military. You have people that came from public health. You have people that come from public works. You have people all over the place, right? You know, I even met a lady who uh, had her degree in library science and she became an emergency manager due to the fact that they had to have an emergency plan uh, for the library where she worked at um, yeah. for all the – because it wasn't like a like a public library. It was a, uh, a research library that she worked at. And so she had to have a plan for – um all of the volumes of books and research and and stuff they had to do to get out of, you know, to to protect it. So, you know, hospitals, another one, right? And so I got in here because I started responding to, as the incident management, um, responding to some of the larger fires in California, Um, mostly Riverside, San Bernardino, LA County, Orange County, a little bit in the San Diego County, these areas here. Um, and I, I worked um, into medical logistics. So ordering all the supplies during the event, supporting all the people that are out in the field, you know, uh, working in the EOC, working in the command post. And I really loved that aspect of, of emergency response. And, and this is kind of where it gets kind of, people think I, I'm crazy at some point, but I had two job offers at the exact same time. One was for LA County Fire Department to be a firefighter, right, which is what was actually my original goal. And the other one was for the city of Dana Point to be an emergency manager. And on the pay scale, um, they paid just about the same, you know, um, so it wasn't like I was choosing between. And, you know, after talking to my wife and discussing, you know, life plans and stuff like this, um, I went with the emergency management position, Dana Point, um and I, and I don't I, I didn't look back I think that was the, my best decision I made career wise in my life um, I've then I got into emergency management um, full blown uh, and from there and then I first started working at Dana Point with the nuclear power plant that was down the street from us because we had we were in the emergency evacuation zone or the EPZ as they call it the emergency planning zone and the San Onofre uh, nuclear generation station was. Just a few miles down the road. Technically, it's in San Diego County, but it's right on the border of Orange County and San Diego County. And uh, we were about, well, 10 miles away, maybe a little bit less, uh, from uh, from the uh, nuclear power plant. So, working in that environment with that um, threat, well, being there, right? Even though the threat was very low, low probability, uh, but it was one of those low probability, high impact, right? If something occurred, if you think about. Fukushima now, or you think about Chernobyl, uh, those events um, kind of give you that high, you know, the, the high impact. Uh, if something went wrong. Uh, so we were under the pressure in, in a way, uh, a good pressure, I suppose. Uh, from FEMA, um, every two years we had we went through this thing called a graded exercise, um, and, and so it really sharpened my skills quickly on how to work through the plan, the, the process, EOC evacuate or, or activations. Uh, evacuation planning, mass communication, um, all of those were, were tested, right? Like right, you got a grade, you know. So it wasn't something that you were like, okay, let's do a, an exercise and at the end everybody pats themselves on the back. I mean you really have to pick at that after action report and 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 make those significant changes in how you do things to make yourself better. And so that being said, it wasn't just ourselves. It wasn't just data point, right? Working with San Clemente and San Capistrano, the County of Orange, uh, the Caltrans, um, the CHP, the State Park Department, the County of San Diego, Camp Pendleton, um, Riverside County, uh, the Parks Department for Orange County as well. So all these, got to learn how to collaborate with all these different moving and political entities that have, all have different needs, right? And so working through all that problem, it really made you a better emergency manager, and even like a better, just you know, collaborator, if you will, because you need to. It's, it's not you can't just you know take your football and go home, you know. It, you you have to work with these people and, and work through the personalities, work through the political considerations, and understanding how that works with them and how they work with you. And um, at the end of the day, it, it was it was such a great experience and learning experience uh, to be my first emergency manager.
0: that's excellent yeah I like how you I like how you put that in terms of you know all the different you know professions and and different skill sets coming together to do emergency management and to to bring in all those different perspectives you know that's one of the things I, I love about it myself is in in my capacity you know I had I had a choice um where I could have I, I not not like not to brag or anything but I, I had a I had an offer to go to the police department and offer to go to the fire department and, or I could join the military. And I I chose to join the military because at the time it was post 9 11 and we had just invaded Iraq. And so when I, when I ETS out of the military and we came back here to Houston, then I kind of revisited that same question and you know, well, should I reapply for the police department or the fire department or, or whatnot? And, um, what I ended up doing was going into safety, which is what I do now, um, safety, health, and environmental. And so throughout the year, I've done construction and manufacturing, and then I went into healthcare, and now I do healthcare slash public service with public public health. And so I'm the safety officer and the safety advisor. And so within that capacity, I always say kind of in a lighthearted way, but it's very true is, you know, instead of choosing you know, to be a police officer or to be a firefighter or paramedic, I now I get to work with everybody every day, you know, so I, I really couldn't ask for anything more. I, I definitely get to interface with so many, you know, just just fantastic professionals and all of this comes together. So not only we can build the most comprehensive, you know, safety management plan, but then that also goes into our emergency management planning and everything comes together, you know, especially with things like the last year with this pandemic and, Everything else that we've dealt with with winter storms and just everything, so um, I, I totally hear you. That that's definitely um, great perspective. So with that, so now at this point, as yes, you've been in the military, you've done emergency medicine, you've gone into emergency management, so now you're you're in the mix. You're working on plans, you're working on operations, and over there in, in California, you've got got quite a lot to work with, especially with the with the fire situation and whatnot. So now you're into emergency management. So how would you explain kind of the the quote unquote Reader's Digest version to to somebody that works in a in a safety field or someone who hasn't been involved with with emergency management? How would you explain the the re, the Reader's Digest version of the emergency management framework? So the the ICS and the NIMS and how all that comes together to build this cross functional, multidisciplinary response?
1: Well, I'm gonna I, I stole this description from Craig Fugate. Uh, who was the former FEMA administrator under uh, George Bush and uh, Barack Obama. Um, he's a pretty dynamic guy. If you, if you don't know much about him, it's well to look him up. Um, and we were talking one day, and he said, being an emergency manager is like being a football, right? And he goes, or I suppose any kind of, coach for that matter, but he said football. And so being a football coach, what you do is you, you go through practices, you, you, which is our drills and exercises right? You write through your, 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 game plan, which is our game plan. Right. Um, and you tweak it and you, and you, and you work with each of the players that are going to be on the field on game day and you make them better, right? Changing things up here and there, you coach them through maybe, you know, little tweaks under under professional, profession or not, because it, everybody who's playing that day is definitely a professional. They know what they're doing, but they're just tweaking them just a little bit to make them that much better. And then when game day occurs, right, you're not in a field, you, you are not, you're no longer a responder. You're not putting the the wet stuff on the red stuff. You're you're not going and and breaking up, you know, protesters that are are destroying buildings or whatever. You're that's not what your job is, right? Your job is to be in the command center, the EOC, command post, and supporting those people that are out on the field doing their job. And, and so and you you might call audible in every once in a while, or you might or a play, if you will, um, or you you support them by putting in additional materials or different uh, players or just, whatnot and making sure people are rotating through you know that's what you're doing but you're not necessarily in the game on game day you're still coaching from the sidelines still making sure that your players are doing um good and and actually you know, resting them when they need to rest and, and putting additional resources in and whatnot and that's kind of what you do i love that analogy uh and i and I, i'm making it my own uh with a little twist here but uh craig fugue kind of came up with that example and i think that's the best one.
0: Um, that, that's excellent. It's great, great description. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how you put that. Is one of the things that we've always, you know, in in healthcare in particular, we've always made it a point is to make sure that the the senior leadership understands the difference. Like you said, you know, the difference between being a being a firefighter and you know literally putting out a fire or treating a patient versus the macro management. You know, now you're over this response, whether it be the you know the, the incident command or whether you're in an EOC and you're looking at your ESFs and you know, you're calling in the support where you need it and applying resources you know it's always one of those inevitabilities that you'll have someone that has has elevated from you know let's say in a hospital environment they may be an RN and then they've elevated through the years and now they're now they're a chief nursing officer so they're over the all the nurses for the whole hospital and then you have a situation like let's say like Ebola back in 2014 and so this response is taking place now, and you, know, you have rural outpatients and you have this situation that, you know, could be catastrophic if it's not handled properly. And the, the chief nursing officer doesn't quite see the difference between being at the tactical level, you know, with hands on the patient versus being at the incident command level and being able to identify where you need support from the nurses and where you need support from um, infection control or where you need, um, you know, logistics and being able to move those pieces around and make sure that oh, that overarching response happens. So it, it's interesting how you put that. Is definitely a key is being able to see the big picture.
1: Absolutely, and that's the thing too is, is looking at big picture. I think those that do well in emergency management um, are those that are able to think abstractly and and think at that higher thirty two thousand, you know, uh, foot level of of you right, and not get, not allowing themselves to get granular into those weeds. And, you know, one of the things you know, talk about getting into the weeds. The reason why, when you, I mean, you know, it's kind of speaking to the choir here. But one of the reasons why, as soon as you start getting into the weeds, you're not able to be effectively seeing everything that's going on in um, that emergency. You know, I mean, I know you're there in, in Houston. You know, and think about, you know, if during that snowstorm, <laughs> you know. If the emergency manager or, or the person who's supposed to be in charge of that higher level started getting into a plow truck or a sanding truck going driving through the neighborhoods to throw sand onto the ground, uh, how effective would they be to see all the other problems that are happening and they would miss maybe like the fact that the power was out or the water was not running properly and being able to respond to that. So You have to stay at that higher level of, of viewpoint and, and not allow yourself to get in the weeds. And I'm telling you, hey, coming from... From being, you know, a field guy, it's hard to sit at your desk or, you know, in the EOC and, and watch these things on on the TV and whatnot, and not wanting to jump out into the field and, and be, you know, get into it again. But you have to understand that you need to step back and, and be that person. I mean, you talk to any fire chief out there, or police chief that's out there, and they still want to be in the street doing their thing, um, but they also know that they have to step back. Same thing as emergency.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we even see the same thing in terms of safety is that, you know, it's one thing to be in the field, you know, working to identify, assess, and control hazards, you know, in real time, but it's another thing to be able to look at multiple departments or or multiple operations, you know, all in real time simultaneously and make sure that each of them has the ability to simultaneously identify, assess, and control hazards on their own, you know, because if we don't develop that autonomy within each operation then you know you might have one operation that's you know it's it's risk managed to the best possible level but the other ones it's it's not not risk managed at all you know so i definitely agree so so within that context so now we've got this emergency management going on we've got this macro level response you've got all those different pieces whether it be your your incident command or whether it be your eoc and you may even have nims and you may have you know partnering agencies or Coalition, even um, so. Within that, what are some what are some examples, some different kind of uh, case studies, if you will, where you've seen the emergency management construct applied to to healthcare operations, whether it be in the in the field with emergency medicine or whether it be in the in the hospital context. What are some different some different scenarios you've seen?
1: Yeah. So specifically with the hospitals, um, one of the first times I've seen hospital incident management. Um, up and running was during a shooting um, at a hospital in Baldwin Park, California. Um, a guy uh, went into the surgery wing uh, of, the, of the hospital and shot and killed a doctor. Um, now, no one really knew what the heck was going on. Situational awareness was not known at this point, whether it was an active shooter situation um, or whatnot. So, Shutting down the hospital, the large hospital, was 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 work, right? And so not only did they have the threat of the shooter, then they had to move non-critical patients um, out of the hospital. Um, they had to move visitors out of the hospital. They couldn't allow the visitors to use their own vehicles because the um, parking garages and all were were shut down with law enforcement kind of surrounding the building. So they had to bring in buses and ambulances, things like this to, to move people to other hospitals and into shelters or community center and whatnot um the disposition of the of this case was the the guy left the hospital drove down the freeway just a little bit from because the hospital's freeway closed, um and ended up killing himself in his car so the threat was really over um once he shot that one doctor and, and and vacated the hospital, but that being said, obviously without knowing what the situation was, how many shooters there were, what, the situation was, um, seeing that it put into action, um, the hospital administrators and their management team going to work, working hand in hand with law enforcement and fire and EMS, and I, I was actually part of the the um, EMS incident management team uh, that responded to that event, and and uh, to see to see them coordinate. Um, with everybody in communication with their security team um, and their safety team, uh, throughout the hospital. It was, I wouldn't say it was flawless, but it was, it was pretty darn close to flawless uh, of an operation that you could do with those many moving parts.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's its tragic, the, the active shooter situations, those definitely, unfortunately, there's a lot of that that's happened in healthcare over the years and um certainly certainly a, a unified response there between not only the, the hospital itself but then you've got law enforcement you've got ems Um so there's a lot of moving parts there definitely yeah <clears throat> and, you know,
1: in, in the case of this guy if i remember the story correctly he lost somebody whether it was his mother or father or loved one somehow and he blamed the doctor um for, for the loss And uh, yeah, so I mean, so that's that's a real threat in hospitals.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's very tragic, you know. With with workplace violence, you know, we talk about that in healthcare, in healthcare safety in particular, you know, almost every day because it ranges, like you said, you know, from your active shooter, you know, kind of a very very high severity incident, you know, all the way to a nurse leans over to you know, to take care of a patient and the patient, you know, punches the nurse or, or pulls the hair or whatnot. So it happens pretty much daily, you know, somewhere in the, somewhere in some health system in the city. Um, so being able to manage that, you know, so that we have the best possible controls, so that we're able to identify any potential threat and then implement those controls, whether it be making sure the room is set up properly so that we have egress, nobody's pinned in the room, making sure that they can have reactionary distance. They have, a, you know, a duress button. They're able to call a code if necessary. They can get the proper support through security or law enforcement if needed. Um, and then from there, like you said, you know, it may expand to a much bigger response depending on the severity of the situation. Um, we've seen things in the past. You know, somebody will be brought into the into the emergency department with a gunshot wound, and it it'll be found out with situational awareness a little bit later that you know, it was an attempt to at murder and then somebody will come in to try to try to finish the job. You know, and then you've got your entire ED shut down and you've got that response happening, you know, very quickly. So it it's definitely interesting.
1: Absolutely. You know, and and healthcare, I forget what the statistic off that I could look it up, but healthcare is um I want to say the number one um occupation that uh has those physical threats to them every day and a uh, nursing is the number one um uh job uh, where where there are with violence workplace violence or a victim of workplace violence and you know I mean, as, when i was working in the field i never thought about it as workplace violence right i mean this is just kind of one of those things that you just, i just assume as part of the part of the job but you know <laughs> dealing with people that are on drugs and whatnot or that are or sometimes even diabetic or or other psychological issues that are going on with them and and they hit you right i mean i've i've been punched multiple times you know on the, on the job but you know i never thought of this as workplace violence and then i was reading that statistic um with with nurses and uh they get they get hit a lot you know and, and and not just from the from the um from the patient but from the family members too because family it's a very emotional situation you know when you are when people are dying and or very ill and you know people don't react in a normal basis so yeah i mean that's definitely one of those situations where you work in healthcare that you have to keep your head on a swivel if you will to uh, make sure that you're not um going to be a victim of this uh, some sort of violence
0: yes sir yeah no, absolutely so it's an interesting interesting point you make so one of the things i always talk about you know i've i've, I've written a lot on this and you know, I've done, I've done research and whatnot, so actually part of my dissertation, is in terms of, you know, safety, your your workplace safety, whether it be in a, in a healthcare organization or or any other facility, any other operation, you know, you've got these situations that happen all the time, you know, so we consider it high frequency, but in terms of severity, it may be very high severity to the individual, you know, it may cause someone to lose time from work, or maybe even a disability but in terms of the operation it's considered low severity you know it it won't shut down the hospital but then as you continue up that ladder you know you get lower frequency but higher severity so you've got maybe a situation that involves a visitor to the hospital or a contractor and then you've got the potential for litigation and reputational damage and media coverage and then you go up again now you've got lower frequency but higher severity with infection control you've got things like like MRSA and um, then your, you know, your big situations like Ebola and, and now we have COVID-19. And then you've got the lowest frequency but the highest severity, which is your full-on emergency response. And now you've got a situation that could potentially shut down the whole operation. You know, like you said, it may shut down the hospital. In the case of COVID-19, you know, it, it put the brakes on the whole economy. So, what are what are your thoughts on that in terms of indicators and situational awareness, you know, when I say situational, I mean the big picture, the biggest picture on how to identify when it's moving from that, from that low severity to that high severity and when that response kind of engages. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Absolutely, and before I go answer that question, I just want to you know, I looked it up really quick. It says in the United States, there's a 74%, 74% of all workplace violence occur in health care. Kind of goes back back to that. and you're right. And, and so, and going back to situation awareness, let's talk about, let's keep thinking with that, that, the violence situation. You know, you're right. The, the, the individual nurse or doctor who is as violence put against them, um, you know, dentors or whoever else are working inside the healthcare, room, um, that might not be an issue. But however, if you take a look at it in the, in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, their, their, their productivity levels being pulled out of, out of the workplace. Um, that's, that's one thing as well. But let's say it's, it's something that's escalating, like you're saying, somebody who, um, for instance, we had an issue here in LA County where um, a police officer, uh, two police officers were shot, uh, sheriff's deputies, uh, over in Compton. And they were brought to a hospital, and um, it, was during the, it was during the height of the, well, maybe the middle of the whole Black Lives Matter uh, movement, and um, people went to the hospital to actually protest. The police officer. So that went from just a simple two patients coming in with GSW um, to having a situation on the outside um, where there are protesters protesting the hospital, potential with with violence uh, when it comes to that. So, as somebody who's in in charge of healthcare or hospital safety, I should say, um, understanding the severity of the situation that's around them. So whether it's that you have protests that are in your area or close to your area, knowing that you have to brace for the potential of having, um, patients being brought in, uh, due to, uh, police activity, whether it's, the, you know, because the protesters are going there because they've gotten pepper sprayed in or shot with, uh, the, with less than lethal weapons, which cause, um, injury in some cases and pain, or, um, going to the hospital and then, and then then police officers being injured uh, during that same time uh, being brought to the hospital. Um, So there's a really bad, that could be potentially a bad mix. So understanding who is in your hospital at that time. And this is one of those things that you should be communicating back to um, to the field with as well, because if you do have an overwhelming number of protesters, for instance, in your emergency room due to injuries, Right, you wouldn't want law enforcement <laughs> showing up there with their injured, because then you then you're bringing that battle from the street into the to the emergency room. Um, so that communication to where um, a hospitals or where, where law enforcement can bring their injured, um, so they're not you know increasing that uh, that conflict. So so you really need to have when you're sitting in the emergency management role of of a healthcare facility. You really need to have that global understanding, situational awareness of what's going on around you, not just focused on your on your facility. And I, I want to equate this kind of also into any kind of campus, whether it's a college. Uh, and a good example of the college was in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, we had a, a, a guy go into a, a grocery store uh, and, and shoot people at the grocery store, which was very close to the university. Um, and the university went on lockdown and shut down. You know because of the proximity so as a hospital you need to be aware of the surrounding areas and the, and the issues that are going on there so you can't be in the cocoon of the of the campus of the facility you need to actually take a look at what's going on, on the outside and that will really impact what you're doing now let's and also when you're bringing people in say um with the chemicals on them from from the uh protests, um, what does that mean? What's what's your protocol of bringing them into into your ER? And can that chemical get put in and sprayed? And what I mean chemical, whether it's it's um, the CS gas that the that the that the uh, police are shooting or or pepper spray uh, that they're shooting, those chemicals get into, and that could get into your HVAC system throughout your entire hospital, um, and you might close down your entire hospital due to uh, a number of victims coming into the ER um, with those chemicals inside their clothing or possibly um, you know getting into the system so so what's your what's your protocol for that right and and activating that protocol prior to uh, the event occurring knowing that there's protests happening in your area um, then you can start putting those prote- those those protocols into place so you don't have those other cascading event issues going into the physical plant of your hospital there's a lot to think about when it when it comes to physical plants um and and managing those crises, not just inside the hospital themselves, but the things that are affecting them from the outside
0: as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's definitely definitely relevant. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, is one of the things I've always, you know, imparted to to leadership there is if you're talking about an operation. Where you know there's a lot of moving parts there, then you know wherever there's that potential where those things are going to need to be coordinated in real time, you know it's 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 prime time you know for that coordinated response, and that's why the EM construct exists. you know and for example, if we're talking about something like um, on an everyday basis, you know we have the potential where someone will come into a into a hospital with with indicators of tuberculosis. You know, and that, that process is pretty streamlined over time where, you know, they'll put the patient into a surgical mask for source control. They'll transport him back to a negative pressure isolation room. The nurse will have the respiratory protection program, put on a 95 respirator, PPE, take care of the patient. You know, those steps are pretty hardwired after so many years of, you know, TV response. Right. But then you get into a situation with COVID-19 where, you know, now we're in a place where we have so many more patients that have indicators of COVID-19. There's not nearly enough isolation rooms. There's a shortage of n 95 respirators. You know, there's just so many variables that happen in there. The testing is not hardwired like a TV screening. You know, the COVID-19 testing, it took a little bit of time to get that rolling the way it should be. There's no treatment, you know, not a valid, reliable treatment at least. You know, and then of course, the vaccine didn't come around for you know, until December 2020. So there's a lot of variables that are very different with this with this pandemic. And so everything has to be coordinated, you know, whether it's, like you said, the the physical, you know, facility operations with negative pressure and isolation rooms, or even just physical separation of patients, you know, with distancing. And then you've got the situation where logistics and materials management has to be able to, you know, find respirators and they can't be counterfeit and they have to be NASH approved, you know, or at least emergency use authorizations you know, so all these different moving parts, you know, it's, it's just impossible for one person to do it. So that construct is, is very important, not only to, to manage it, but to prevent it from becoming even higher severity. Would you agree with that? No,
1: absolutely. I I do. And, and that's, that goes back to that whole idea of, of understanding what's going on outside of the, uh, of the camp and, and having those plans in place. Right. And, and this is where, this is where hospitals, facilities in general, really need to be working with their emergency management professional um, and their, their safety professional. Um, I know that at times it can feel that we're being bureaucratic and and stopping things from happening. What I mean that, but I mean like just putting, putting more more paperwork, if you will, in front of you to, to make things occur inside your department. But it's done because it, it needs to be done. And one of the things I'm a pro- big proponent of is when you write your emergency operations plan and your business continuity plan for that matter, is that decisions, the daily decisions throughout the um, organization should reflect on what it says inside of those plans. And and I think that you kind of got at that. You know, When you take a look at the, what's going on with tuberculosis, Um, And and that protocol that happens people know it and it's done there because you know There's been issues and and you work through those and now especially with you have COVID coming into the play You know not understanding necessarily how it's being uh, transmitted. um, We're you know, I I would The things I'm reading today. We're still not 100% sure if it's aerosol or if it's through drop right I mean they they have an idea uh, But it kind of keeps going back and forth a little bit on, on exactly how it spreads, and this is why we're wearing masks, right? Um, right, right. So, so having those protocols in place, I, I think are critical. And, and and again, having your administration working directly with your safety and emergency management partners inside your facility, it's not just a JCO regulation is, is why you, you know you have to have somebody in those roles, right? I mean, you know, it's also because there's serious implications if you don't follow these protocols. And lots of people may get sick and die because of the failure to follow this. So, you know, taking that into consideration, you know, I think, I think really stressing that partnership with your administration um, and, and having them understand exactly what you bring to the table um, is critical, especially when it's coming to planning for these diseases that are spreading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's
0: that's... That's very important and you know when we talk about you know safety on an everyday basis you know and then there's that that transition to where it gets into that you know whether it's internal or external disaster and it calls you know into that full one response a lot of times there's there's not a there's not a huge segue you know we go from something like you know patient care and then it's just a matter of indicators and symptoms and then it requires more and more resources, then it gets into that emergency response. So when it does that, of course, that person that's usually doing safety on an everyday basis, that person will now get into that safety officer role. So with that, you know, we have a lot of people that that do safety and they 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 haven't had the they haven't had a reason to be in that role. And then a lot of times when people Transition into a healthcare role, you know that becomes synonymous, where you become the safety officer for the ICS response. So, what what type of um, what type of a- attributes I should say? What type of things do you look for when someone shows up and they say, you know, hi, I'm I'm your safety officer today. You know, what would what would you be looking for from them in terms of things that they can provide to you in terms of information and intelligence and things that'll benefit the response?
1: Well, there's a couple of things. Specifically with a safety officer, and number one, you have responsibilities. You're not you're not just that person who's sitting there, you know, looking at stuff and, and just kind of you know, hanging out drinking coffee, and whatnot. Um, you know, going out and making sure that the safety plan is adhered to is is critical, and being able to write a quality safety plan is the other. Thing. And also working independently because sometimes it's it's hard right because you as a safety officer you have the right the authority and the ability to shut down a complete operation um, on your word and your word alone right you 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 step over the incident command um, the instant commander uh, line right you say hey I don't care what's going on I see the safety problem here loss of life, you know, possible injuries. We're shutting this thing down. And, and so that's, that's a huge responsibility. And it shouldn't be taken lightly. And you have to have a personality to be able to tell the incident commander, no, this is what it is, and this is why it's happening. And, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's definitely a tough role. So I want somebody in there who is going to be independently minded, um, but, yeah, still work with the team. And, and still communicate because I, w- I would really hate for that that safety officer, unless there's like life at or or potentially you know grievous harm some individual, to stop something without saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is why we need to stop it. Make that call now um, first before they blow that whistle and say, hey, let's stop. So so somebody who who has the ability to tell it as it is not afraid that they're going to lose their position because they piss off the incident commander. And then the, uh, also the ability to articulate in a way where it's understanding of why, the, the, the why of the shutdown. And somebody who's gonna be a partner with that incident command team, because you are part of the command staff, right? You, you, it's you, the, the liaison, PIO, and the incident commander basically uh, hanging out in that one position. And so you are realistically, you know, one of the critical members of that command staff, and must be communicating with the incident commander at all times. Um, things that are happening. Um, also working with the each department, each division, section, and um, you know, department head, if you will, or section head. So whether it's the operations chief, the logistics chief, the finance section chief. Not So much the finance and admin chief, I don't think so much about but those other three for sure, you know, and the operations inherently so uh because you know th- that's they're the ones that are are putting people out in harm's way right i mean they're 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 the ones that are responsible for sending people into the into the belly of the beast, so working with them directly on how what the safety plan is and why it's important and what they're looking for, and how we can send people home because at the end of the day, you know on these big events. We want everybody to be able to go home to their families um, and their loved ones uh, with all their limbs and fingers and toes, um, and without being burnt or, or or injured in any other way. And uh, you know we've had loss of life, right? This is legit. This is a real deal, right? I mean, if you think about the Granite Mountain firefighters um, in Prescott, Arizona, uh, you know one of those kids happened to um, be from the town where uh, where I worked. And his uh you know his dad and his mom and his it was his sister um you know were were in our town uh the day that he died and it was you know even though I never knew him and didn't even realize he would live there until until he died the, the loss that we felt in the community uh, for that one individual uh, was tremendous right and and so I compound that by i think it was like what seventeen guys or something i, I don't remember the number exact but it was a more than 12 I believe that, that passed um due to that fire you know could that have been prevented and and I've read the, called the URL fire and I've read the after-action report on it um, it wasn't it wasn't very uh, flattering uh, for the fire captain who whose crew passed uh, but at the same time you know there's some other failures that occurred during that time and and could a strong safety officer could they have prevented that by saying hey that you know, looking at understand the situation awareness and, and the way the smoke, the, the fire was moving during that time, could that have been prevented? I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not I'm not saying it could have been, but I mean I know that there's a lot of people um, took a lot of heat for that particular incident, rightfully so, uh, all the way to the incident commander who is ultimately responsible uh, for anything that happens um, on these on these events, and uh, the safety officer is needs to be the incident commander's best friend. Because it's going to keep the incident commander out of out of trouble, <laughs> you know. That's the job of the safety officer. So that's what I got on that.
0: Definitely, definitely, I totally agree. You know, it's it's a it's a matter of seeing the big picture and everything that we know about you know risk assessment. It all becomes just so vivid in an emergency response because. You you literally have to make those decisions of you're looking at what's right in front of you and you say, okay, here's the risk to the responders right here, right now, and here's the risk to the public right here, right now. And then you have to look at that and say, okay, if, that ri- if I determine that risk to be too much, that I'm going to stop an operation. Now, what's the residual for that? If we don't do the response, then how much worse is the total outcome going to be? You know, so a, a good example of that, we, when we first started doing COVID-19 testing, you know, the question became, okay, so if we don't do this safely, then not only are the responders at risk, high risk for getting sick, but they could also become vectors, spread the virus in the community. And now the overall pandemic becomes that much worse, so not only do we not have testing, but we now have more cases. So we've actually had complete counterproductivity. So it's one of those things that, you know, we have to look at that in terms of how do we enable a safe response so that we're able to not only keep the responders safe, but to accomplish the mission, which in turn enables safety in the big picture in the long run. Um, So I I, I totally agree there is, like you said, is what happens if you shut down a response to a fire? Okay, so the responders might be safer at that moment but the fire still burning, and so is that fire going to spread even more? Is there going to be that much more damage and that many more losses of life? Um, whereas, if we could make that response safe to a to a manageable level, can we impact the big picture? So it, it's a lot of very heavy, you know, high gravity decisions. I definitely agree.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So with that in mind. Um, you know, so let's say that somebody, somebody came around and they said, well, you know, I've been doing safety for a few years, you know, I've, I've been the safety coordinator in a factory and then I've been the safety manager. And so now I'm going to be the safety manager for my community hospital or for my hospital system. What, and they said, what, what, what would you say about that? Um, what kind of advice would you give them going into that role in terms of, um, things that they should work on proactively so that if a situation comes up and they become that safety officer for, for the emergency management, um, what would prepare them for that? What, would the advice, what, what advice would you give them?
1: Keep learning. Um, you know, it, it, even if you've been doing this for 20 years, if you stop uh, looking at what's happening new, um, you know, what the new trends are, uh, what the new skills are, uh, you you you're doing yourself a disservice, and you're doing your organization a service and you're doing the community a disservice. So that being said, constant uptake and upgrading what your skill set is. Um, learn to collaborate, right? Safety officers sometimes can be a lonely position. Um, sometimes it's only one person in the department and the, the organization. Um, I know my um, my producer Brian at Sitch Radio. Uh, he he was a safety officer uh, for for many years uh, in for a uh, production uh, organization, and you know he would go around uh, every day. He said you go around, you know, just saying hi to people, uh, getting to meet each department head, uh, walking in, and, and every day he would do rounds uh, to to see who was who in the zoo, basically, and, and to to deal with to, to meet people and to the, know the new people and you know that was important for him because when when it came down to the point of making something occur they knew he was coming from a place of knowledge of the of the organization uh knowledge of their needs and it wasn't felt as something that was just arbitrarily uh placed on excuse me thank you um so i think that's important you know um getting to know the organization getting to know the community you know um don't don't sit in don't sit in your office you know you're, you're not doing anybody any good uh by by sitting in the office you know get out there and get to know people um because you're there for a reason right you you you've made your way up the ranks you you've proven yourself to be uh um competent um as, as a as a person um in, in that position uh but competency doesn't always breed um respect uh, but Knowing people and and getting to meet them and and working with them and showing that your care uh, and showing that you that you feel for their positions and understand that you're not just throwing rules out there just for rules and whatnot um I think goes a long way and that's i think that's my my take on that
0: yeah absolutely yeah I, I couldn't agree more that you know the communication and the the interpersonal skills are, are hugely important. Um, one of the big things that, you know, we always talk about in the safety community is that, um, you know, you want to be able to um, to make sure that people understand, you know, where you're coming from in terms of your ethics and your um, your, your methodology of why you're making those decisions, you know, here in terms of hazard identification, hazard assessment, hazard control, and then in terms of risk management is making sure that we can get these things safe to the best possible level while enabling the operation, you know, and so if people understand why you're doing those things and why you're making those decisions, then they also understand by default that if you have to make a bad decision, not a bad decision, excuse me, a, a tough decision, where right. if you have to say, you know, this is, this is just too risky, you know the, the benefits are not worth the cost then they understand that that's not something you're doing lightly you know um, so if people know you know where you're coming from then they'll understand that you know it's not a not a political play and it's not a power play it's, it's just there um, based on that methodology and those those ethical boundaries but um yeah I definitely agree um, you know one of the things i would also say and tell me tell me your thoughts on this one of the things i also always articulate is that you know we want to make sure that we're we're keeping things as safe as possible you know within feasibility to enable the operation you know because sometimes you know it's not going to be perfect but if we shut down the operation then the overall outcome may be worse you know it, than if we had continued it um, so it's always a matter of being able to figure out how to do things safely so what I always say is that, you know, almost anything can be done. It's just a matter of proper planning and preparedness. Um, and then, like I said, if we have to shut something down, then it's, it's really bad. You know, it's, it's, it's at a point where the risk level is just so high, but, um, what, what are your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, being able to be a strategic enabler?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is, I'm on a hard stop here. So I'll answer this question. I'm going to have to go. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think that goes back to what I was saying regarding, um, really working with people and, and understanding what their needs are and, and, and the planning portion of it and, and what that really, what that means. And so you really, every, even if it's a hasty plan, everything that you do, especially revolving around, um, large removing events, right. Whether it's, you know, like I said, you, you have a protest happening down the street from you and now you have to plan for that. You know, put a plan together and and, and work, work through that plan because it's not as 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 um you know President Eisenhower when he was a general said it's not the plan that uh, matters it's the process the planning process that right because all plans uh fail first contact right so go through that process and having everybody understand and you know that what that means and I'm gonna leave you with this Amanda Ripley um wrote about this in in her book unthinkable and she was talking about the safety manager a risk risk and safety and security manager um, or one of the offices um, on 9-11 and his name is rick i always kill his last name or loralee oh man i'm killing his name i and when i go to heaven i'm gonna have to tell rick uh i apologize uh, for that so when he he um he, he would drill these people every day oh well, not every day but often um, all the way up to the point to where he'd have a fire drill and evacuation drill. Um he would go into the president's office and if he go on a call and say, you know, you can't just sit here. It's a drill, you're out. And um he was accredited for saving um thousands of people's lives that day uh because of that drill that he did. Um he ended up perishing, uh him along with the president of the I think it was Morgan Stanley. Um and uh um he put himself, himself at risk, went back upstairs to make sure everybody was out and, then, and that's when he perished when the when the tower collapsed um but he's he's a hero for sure and he did that because he did it from not from a place of control not from a place of where you, you did it because i'm telling you to do it because he knew at the end of the day that practicing the escaping down those fire escapes um in the twin towers was going to save somebody's life someday and he and he's he shown to be right and so don't be afraid to be that guy standing in the hallway with a bullhorn yelling at people, singing songs, being annoying, get them to evacuate during a fire. Because at the end of the day, um, you know that you are doing the right thing uh, to help save lives. And so, Corey, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for having me on your show.
0: That's fantastic information. We appreciate it. And um, I'll let you get to your next meeting. But thank you so much, Todd. Appreciate it. All
1: right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.